Okay, everybody. Today's Bible reading is Ezekiel 28, 1 to 19. Thank you, Sally. I'll give you a second to flip on or scroll over or whatever your preferred method of Bible reading is. Okay. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a mere mortal and not a God. Though you think you are as wise as a God. Are you wiser than Daniel? There's no secret hidden from you. By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. And because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a god, I'm going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I am a god, in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a mortal, not a god, in the hands of those who slay you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of foreigners. I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, cryolocyte and emerald, topaz, onyx and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you, and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. Well, that's a cheery reading. <laughs> so some of you might think, why on earth did we read that bit of the Bible? And if you've just come in, we're working our way through Ezekiel, all right? So this is the passage we're up to. What we've just read is a lamentation about the king of Tyre. When you think about it, it's astounding that the Bible, which in the Old Testament is so self-consciously focused on Israel and her fate, should have a whole chapter devoted to lamenting the downfall of a pagan king. In fact, our section today, chapters 25 to 32, has not just one but four lamentations about foreign nations or rulers who come under God's judgment. This is a massive shift in the book of Ezekiel from what we've been seeing so far. Last week, we covered 16 chapters um, of God explaining why he was judging Jerusalem. This week, the attention has shifted with eight chapters all about the judgment that God was going to bring, not on Israel or Jerusalem, but on the nations that surrounded Israel. 
So time and time again, Ezekiel in these chapters is told prophesy against this nation, that nation, with the result that time and time again, then they will know that I am the Lord. Now from that, we would surmise that what's happening here is God is delivering a message to those nations saying why he is against them and ultimately how he will reveal himself to them that they may know that I am, he is the Lord, except for a puzzle. The puzzle is this. Ezekiel is told to prophesy against the nations, but we've got no reason to think that those nations ever heard what Ezekiel was prophesying. Because Ezekiel wasn't instructed to rock up to the gates of the main city of each nation shouting out God's message, Ezekiel was a Jewish exile in Babylon, 1,400 miles away from Jerusalem and the surrounding nations. Those who heard his prophecies weren't the kings of those nations, they were his fellow exiles, the elders of Israel sitting around him. Ezekiel had to speak against the nations, but not to the nations. So that raises a question. Why would God bring this message about other nations to the Jewish exiles in Babylon when those nations themselves would not hear that message? What's God's purpose? Oh, clearly it had some purpose for Ezekiel's Jewish companions in exile, but what? Well, we're not told explicitly, but I think we can work it out. Israel's elders received these prophecy at a very tense, nail-biting time, right? We know from last week, Ezekiel had just announced that God was about to take away from them the delight of their eyes. He was about to take away Jerusalem with its temple. And he, uh, they were told Nebuchadnezzar with the Babylon, Babylonian army was now in real time laying siege to the city of Jerusalem and that would continue to happen. At the same time, Ezekiel is, is prophesying uh, to Israel's elders against the nations and that will continue until the end of our passage when a messenger arrives from Jerusalem saying, Jerusalem's now destroyed. So Ezekiel delivers these prophecies of judgment on the nations at this tense, nail-biting, in-between time of waiting. They know judgment's begun, but it hasn't finished. So why does God bring this message to these people at this time? God has said his goal is to turn their hearts around. He will remove their hearts of stone uh, which landed them in this situation in the first place, their unresponsiveness, their hard-heartedness towards God, he will remove that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, a, so a heart that's soft towards God. He will give them an undivided heart, fed by a new spirit that shakes off idolatry and wants to love God and love God alone. But what will that take? because they're hard-hearted, right? How do you get a new heart? He's told them, I'm going to give you a new heart. Is that enough? He's then told them, get a new heart. Is that enough? He's told them he's now judging Jerusalem in real time. Is that enough? He's told them their natural response of being hard-hearted, still remaining hard-hearted and not grieving over their sin and mourning over their sin, which got them into this situation in the first place. That's bizarre. Is that enough? 
Well, in the in-between time, as they're waiting, knowing that God's judgment against his people is finally real, no doubt the question is forming in their minds, God, we know about your judging us, but what about those other nations, God? What about our immediate neighbours? Because we thought they were on our side. You see, we had entered into a, a defensive alliance with those nations. We all ganged up against Babylon. There was a pact, there was an agreement. If Babylon came against one, the others would fight to defend. We thought we had friends, but when we were the ones singled out by Babylon as the first for attack, our friends abandoned us and they laughed at us as we went into exile and they mocked us. So God, what about our hostile friends? And then there's the other question, of course, that was in the back of their mind, though they wouldn't have voiced it. What about Egypt? Because, frankly, we're not sure we can trust God, but Egypt, they're another power. And, you know, when push comes to shove and Babylon's attacking, maybe Egypt is the safe refuge. Maybe they're the ones who are going to come and fight for us. Um, they were a former superpower. Militarily, they're the only ones who could hazard a chance against Babylon. What about them, Lord? So two questions, what about our hostile friends and what about our alternate hope, Egypt? First of all, what about our hostile friends? This is the bulk of the sermon, right, in time. Chapter 25, here's a map. Um, Israel's there, they've got the other nations round about. Okay, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, son of man, set your face against the Ammonites to the east and prophesy against them. The Ammonites were the first of four of Israel's neighbors whom Ezekiel prophesies against. Now, just to explain, they and the Moabites are distantly related to Israel. All right, if you go back in time to the family tree, Israel began with Abraham, but Abraham had a nephew, Lot, and Lot had two sons, Moab and Ammon, from whom the Moabites and the Ammonites came. Edom down south bore a closer relationship to Israel. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered two twin boys, Jacob, who fathered Israel, and Esau, who fathered the Edomites. Philistia there, they had, were no blood relation. They were the Philistines. They were the ancient enemies, right? Now, for each of these nations, God sends Ezekiel a prophecy of their destruction, and it came true because I know when you were watching with me the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games, there were no Edomites who marched in. There was, there was no Ammonite flag. There, you know, there, there were no Moabite pole vaulters who were represented there. They have ceased to exist. No Philistines. They're not there. Now, they are not the only nations or people groups to have been obliterated in the history of the world. There have been many, many others, and archaeologists keep uncovering remains of people groups we don't know who they are, but but we do know about these people. So what was their sin? What was their heinous sin that warranted their extermination? Their sin in the eyes of God was that they turned on Jerusalem, such that when Nebuchadnezzar attacked it and lay siege to it, they not only abandoned their alliance, they gloated over Jerusalem's demise. Ammon, because you rejoiced with all the malice of your heart against Israel. Moab, because you said, look, Judah has become like the nations, pillaged by Babylon, 
Edom, because you took revenge on Judah and became guilty in doing so. Philistia, because you took revenge with malice in your heart and with ancient hostility, sought to destroy Israel, I will stretch out my hand against you. You laugh at the suffering of the people who are the apple of my eye. You plot their downfall. You become my enemy. God's beef with these nations was that they acted with hostility against his people. Now, if you are a Judean exile and you're sitting over in Babylon and you're anxious about Jerusalem and you hear Ezekiel announce this, what impact is that going to have on you? Well, you know you're suffering God's judgment, but at the same time, hearing that, it would have a strange reassurance. If God is against those who are against you, well, what does that say about what God's still thinking about you, except that he is still somehow for you in an angry sort of way? So that's Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. That's the easier nations, chapter 25. What now of the nation that was wholly unfeeling, wholly self-centered, wholly mercenary, the nation of Tyre that only sought to profit from Jerusalem's downfall. Just to explain, Tyre was both the financial center of the ancient world and its trading center. Tyre lay on the Mediterranean coast, off the coast of Lebanon today, about 100 miles to the north of Jerusalem. There was an old city of Tyre that was on the coast, so that picture is inaccurate, imagine a big old city there on the coast. And then 600 metres off the coast, built on two sandstone island shelves, was the financial mega-district with the king's palace and harbours for trading ships to come and go, and they had access to all the Mediterranean. Tyre was the ancient equivalent of Singapore, if you like, you know, the island but it had the financial clout of a New York or a London. When Tyre prospered, the world grew wealthy. The only city that was really in competition with Tyre as a meeting place for the traders of the world was in fact Jerusalem. Uniquely positioned between Egypt and Africa to the south and then through a narrow band of land, Syria to the north and then through the north, access to Babylon and Persia over in the east. When Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, lay siege to Jerusalem, Jerusalem ceased its function as gateway to the nations. And at this, Tyre didn't, wasn't sad for Jerusalem, wasn't sad for God's people, it just spotted an opportunity. So Tyre rubbed its greedy hands together and saw a chance to take a monopoly on almost all of the world's trade. So callous, so indifferent, so godless was Tyre's reaction that God sends a message of destruction. And the, the destruction of Tyre was so significant in the ancient world, three whole chapters in Ezekiel are devoted to it, lamenting the city's destruction and, and then lamenting the downfall of her king. Now in these laments, several things stand out. It's clear that God takes seriously those who take a stand against his people. Yesterday, um, I was reading the Barnabas Fund newsletter, and you, know, you hear again of another, 
another attack on Christian kids in Nigeria, 275 kidnapped from a Baptist school by Islamic militants. Now, those children matter to the Lord, and he takes a very serious view of those who come against his children and those who want to harm them. You do not pick a fight with God or with his people. It's like poking a lion. Second, the Lord is ruler over the king of the world, oh, sorry, over the world and over its centers of power that set themselves up against him and he can bring them down. And history is replete with examples of this, empires which have risen and fallen, great centers which are no more. In the case of Tyre, God is the God of history. He specifically names Nebuchadnezzar as the one who will lay siege to Tyre and bring his battering rams against her and reduce her to rubble. Historically, this is what happens. So Nebuchadnezzar's siege on the old city of Tyre on the shore um, lasted 13 years, a siege going for 13 years. And then he completely destroyed it. He reduced the whole place to rubble. But he couldn't reach the new city offshore, which brought in its supplies during that siege time via the sea. But then if you read chapter 26 carefully, which describes this, there is a change in language between the he of Nebuchadnezzar, what he will do. Down in verse 12 of chapter 26, suddenly the language switches to what they will do, meaning other nations. And historically, it would be another nation, it would be in fact Greece, it would be Alexander the Great who would destroy the island city of Tyre. In 323 BC, Alexander was able to take all the rubble of the, of the ancient city of Tyre that Nebuchadnezzar had left and he would throw it into the sea and he would build, his engineers would build a causeway out to that island city and he would be able to bring his siege engines against it and then totally destroy it. He dismantled it. He threw it into the sea. Now, it's worthwhile pausing and thinking of the shockwaves that this set off around the world. Can you imagine what would happen if London just was blown up and how that would make everyone tremble? I mean, we have an idea of what almost happened to the island of Manhattan, don't we? It's almost 20 years to the day since September the 11th happened. And remember the shockwaves that that sent off around the world and how the whole world trembled. Well, it's the same here. God says, will not the coastlands tremble? The princes of the coast will take off their robes and embroidered garments, clothed with terror. They will sit on the ground trembling every moment, appalled at you. And then they will take up a lament concerning you and say to you how you are destroyed, city of renown peopled by the men of the sea. You were a power on the seas. You put terror on all who lived there. But now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall. The islands in the sea are terrified at your collapse. Even though Tyre exhibit, uh, um, brought terror to bear, when that nation falls, well, what does that mean for the world? Chapter 27 has a, an even longer lament, likening the city of Tyre to a beautiful training, trading ship making, made of the finest materials staffed by the most skillful of sailors, trading wares with people from as far east as Persia, as far west as Greece or Spain, as far south as Africa. And yet as wonderful as the, that 
ship was perfect in beauty, it would sink into the heart of the sea, taking down all its wealth and everyone on board, making those on the shorelands quake cry out, weep in anguish, appalled at what she had become. Now we need to know, God is not against wealth, but the corrupting power of wealth and what it does to a human heart. It's the attitude of the heart that's become corrupt, that, that knows no fear of God, and that pushes God out and makes oneself into a God. That's the issue. And now this brings us to the focused prophecy about the king of Tyre in chapter 28. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a mere mortal, not a God, though you think you're as wise as a God. It's incredible, isn't it, that so any person would be so puffed up and dislocated from reality to say of themselves, I am a God. It is incredible, isn't it? But is it? Because isn't that what happens? Think of world leaders who have existed in your lifetime, whose name you could put in that blank, who become so puffed up, so full of themselves and of their megalomania that they do not care about anyone else nor what their country does to others. God tells us that sort of thinking is satanic. It was there in the Garden of Eden. You were in Eden, the Garden of God. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you and you sinned. And so I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub. I threw you to the earth. This is the passage, by the way, which contains the idea that Satan is a fallen angel. This is where it comes from. Except when you read it, it's about the king of Tyre. Except, he says, you were there in Eden. Now, God is not saying that the king of Tyre literally is Satan, or that the king of Tyre was actually the one in the Garden of Eden all those years ago. But it is saying that same attitude of heart and mind of a world ruler which boasts and says, I am a God and cares nothing for people except to profit from their destruction. That, that was there, that is satanic. But it's not just the king of Tyre, of course, who's thought like this. Belshazzar, who was the successor after Nebuchadnezzar, he thought like this, you can read about him in the book of Daniel. King Herod in the New Testament thought like this in Acts 12. He made himself out to be a god and then he was eaten by worms and died, <laughs> mortal. But nor is it just the puffed up and arrogant world leaders of our own day. We, we see it, don't we? We know this. We see it in the self-made man or woman who looks at all that they've made in their arrogance and pride and just gloats and thinks about other people's misfortune and laughs at them and doesn't care an iota for the fate of others. It's all about them. The, you know, the Facebook responder who just loves to tear down anyone who posts anything online which mentions God, Jesus, or church. And the vitriol comes. Um, in fact, it's, well, it can be any of us who in the arrogance of our hearts lose perspective and say, I am a God. 
well, of the king of Tyre, King Ethbal II. God says, are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth, and because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. And therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, because you think you are wise, as wise as a God, I'm gonna bring foreigners against you, the most, most ruthless of nations. They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you? You will be then but a mortal, not a God, in the hands of those who slay you. I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. Well, just as surely as God will destroy Satan on the last day and cast him in the lake of fire, so too God will destroy all those who persist in having this satanic heart of saying, I am a God. He'll bring them down. God brings down the proud. The Israelites in exile. God, what about our hostile friends? Well, I am against those who are against you. And so important, in fact, is this to God, so firm his resolve, this will actually come out on the day of judgment. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25 when he talked about the parable of the sheep and the goats and what would happen on that day? When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all his angels with him and how he will sit on his glorious throne and how all the nations will be gathered before him and then how he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he'll put his sheep on his right and the goats on the left and, and how su the surprising reality will be in what they did or what they didn't do for the least of Jesus' brothers, his people. That's the basis of division. Whatever you did do for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. You're on my right. Whatever you did not do for the least of these brothers of mine, you did not do for me. It's on that basis how people treat Jesus' brothers, how people treat God's children, that either people will come and be invited to claim their eternal inheritance, the kingdom prepared since the creation of the world, or they will be told, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and the angels. It matters that much, it's that serious. To God's children who are suffering, who are hearing this, there's kind of strange reassurance in this. So second question, very briefly, God, what about our alternate hope? Again, they're relying on Egypt, not God, so they wouldn't voice this aloud to God, but it's a question in their minds. The temptation for the exiles was to put their hope not in God, but in Egypt, a past rival superpower to Babylon, no longer, yeah, what it was, but military speaking, the only credible alternative power. In chapters 29 to 32, we see almost a repeat of what God has said about Tyre. God says, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He likens him to a great crocodile, this monster of the Nile. You say, the Nile belongs to me. I made it for myself. In other words, I am a God. But I will put 
hooks in your jaws and I will pull you out of your streams and I will fling you into the desert and leave you there and I will give you as food to the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky. And God speaks of a day, a day of the Lord coming, when God will bring against Egypt, again, Nebuchadnezzar. And on that day, Egypt's proud strength will fail and she will fail as a world power and God says you will never rise again to your former strength. And we know from history that is true. Since Nebuchadnezzar crushed Egypt, she has never ever risen to the height that she once had as a world superpower. Pharaoh's sword arm will be broken. Though he was majestic, God said he will go the way of the former Assyrian superpower. Now God speaks to their past and says, remember Assyria? Okay, Assyria in their heyday. Well, Assyria was once like a majestic tree, more majestic than any of the trees in the Garden of Eden. When Assyria stretched out her branches, all the nations of the world could come and find shelter in the shade, and yet she was cut down and she entered the realm of the dead. And so too, God says, with Egypt and with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and all of his hordes, kings will shudder with sorrow because of you on the day of your downfall. Many peoples will be appalled at you. You who once spread terror in the land of the living, you will go down to the realm of the dead. You're not a God, you're mortal. And this is God's message for the Judean exiles. It's a message about the other nations. Now what is God saying to them? What is God saying to us? The exiles knew that they and the people, their people in Jerusalem were being punished for their idolatry and their sin. And they remained hard of heart. And yet God was saying he was going to change their hearts. And he'd called them to get a new heart. And their first step was to grieve and mourn over their sin, but they couldn't do it, not yet. What's gonna crack open a heart that hard to turn them to God? Could it be that God wanted to show them that despite all that was happening in their lives and the lives of their people at the moment, that they still mattered to him? That God, though he was perfectly just in inflicting this punishment on them, that they really deserve to be treated like the other nations, that in fact for them, he was showing them a measure of grace. And what better way to show it than to take down the nations that just laughed at their demise? I take it God, in other words, was building their confidence, reestablishing the foundations for relationship. And that's why he told them what he was planning for Ammon and for Moab and Edom and Philistia and Tyre, not for the sake of those nations, but to build confidence in the exiles that despite their, the horrendous past that had happened, despite the punishment they're enduring now because of it, in the end, they still mattered to him. At the end of the, these prophecies, God rams this home with news of hope, chapter 28, verse 25. He says, I'm going to gather the people of Israel from the nations where they have been scattered. And then I will be proved holy through them in the sight of the nations. And then they will live in their own land. 
and live there in safety and they will again build houses and they will plant vineyards and they will live in safety when I inflict punishment on all the neighbors who maligned them. Because those neighbors aren't gonna be there anymore to make life terrible for you. And then you will know that I am the Lord and I'm your Lord. He is building their confidence. But secondly, in regard to the chapters of Egypt, he wants to remove any false hope that they had. God's explicit about this, Ezekiel 29 verse 16. He tells them, Egypt will no longer be a source of confidence for the people of Israel, but will be a reminder of their sin in turning to her for help instead of me. And then they will know that I am the Lord. You see, God's jealous for us. Do you have an undivided heart? Or is your heart fully for the Lord? Do you know, in the undivided hearts of Israel, in their history, what God did was he removed whatever crutch they were depending upon and he just took it completely away. And then having taken it completely away, he showed them that he was still for them. He is jealous that you and I both lean on him completely. He wants us. He wants our hearts. He wants the whole of us. He wants us to be dependent upon him. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, we're to pray every day. Give us today our daily bread. We are to come to him daily in dependence. He wants us. He wants to be our God. And he wants us to be his people and he is jealous that this be so. In the end, God told the exiles what he was gonna to do to the nations as the next step to changing their heart, to remind them that he was the God who rules over the nations, but that they still matter to him, and that he is to be their hope, not Egypt, but him. And so his message for us today, it's not your superannuation that you should rely upon. It's not the fact that we live in South Australia. We're not on the East Coast, which is up the spout in terms of Delta. He wants us to depend upon him. It really matters because guess what? We really matter to him. We really do. And he is able to take away whatever crutches we're leaning on. It could be that next month we're awash with Delta. No more boasting that we're in South Australia. It could be that in two months' time, all your superannuation vanishes because there's a world recession, who knows what. He wants you to rely on him. And you matter so much to him that in the end, those who are against you, he will hold to account on the day of the Lord. And you matter to so much to him that he's quite prepared to move whatever false crutch you're relying on if it's not him, because you matter to him that much. You really do. Father in heaven, what a humbling and sober realization to come to that how thick and hard our hearts that you have to paint such a picture which really happened in history. Millions of lives altered to crack open hard hearts and make them soft towards you. 
Father, help us to grieve and mourn over our idolatry in our lives. Help us to depend upon you and you alone. And we praise you for Jesus who went to the cross to make that happen. But that's in later chapter. We look forward to what's coming in Ezekiel. Please, Father, help us to lean on you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, please with, uh, join with me in saying the prayer that is on the screen together. Gracious God, we humbly thank you for all your gifts so freely given to us, for life and health and safety, for power to work, leisure to rest, and for all that is beautiful in creation and human life. But above all, we praise you for our Saviour Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection, for the gift of your spirit and for the hope of sharing in your glory. Fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you that you are sovereign in all the earth and nothing can thwart your plans and purposes. We praise you that you are holy and just and that you do not let sin go unpunished. As we read about the judgments that you passed on the nations at the time of the prophet Ezekiel, we praise you for your power, majesty and might and that through your judgment on these nations, all the world, both then and now, can see that you are Lord of the universe and worthy of praise and honour. We pray for our church family here at Trinity Church, Orgate, and thank you that in your great love and mercy, you have provided each of us with the opportunity to escape the rightful judgment and punishment for our sins through placing our trust in the saving work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. We thank you that you are able and willing to replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Please help us to be quick to repent and cast ourselves on your grace and mercy. Please be at work in our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit, transforming us each day more and more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus. We thank you for our basement youth group ministry and the faithful leaders, Mark, Michael, Debbie, Beck, Sally and Jacob, who serve and care for our young people. Please give them a unity of mind and great wisdom as they lead and disciple those who attend basement. We also pray that you will be growing our young people deeper in their faith and love for you and give them humble servant hearts as they care for each other. We thank you for the blessing it is to be part of a wider network of churches who are united in our desire to see the good news of Jesus boldly and faithfully proclaimed 
to see many hearts, minds and lives transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and for your name to be glorified and for your kingdom to be built. We bring before you this morning our brothers and sisters at Trinity Church Mount Barker and their pastor Scott Maxwell and his wife Keeley. We thank you for the newcomers that they have had come over the last few months and pray that they will quickly settle and be made to feel welcome. We especially pray for those attending the Belong membership course that they will be excited about living and serving as part of God's people at Trinity Church Mount Barker. We also pray for our brothers and sisters at Trinity Church Victor Harbour and their pastor Duncan Andrews and his wife Miriam. We thank you for the healthy number of new team leaders being trained up in various ministry areas and also for the many behind-the-scenes servants of Jesus who quietly pray and care for the church members' needs. We pray for the rebuilding of the kids' church team and programs after a break of over a year. Please bless and grow the congregations at Trinity Church Mount Barker and Trinity Church Victor Harbour in their love and knowledge of you. Give them servant hearts as they minister and learn from God's word and grant them unity in the spirit. As we think of our wider world, we bring before you those nations who continue to be severely impacted by the spread of the coronavirus. We pray that you might give wisdom and insight to those in positions of authority, that they may make decisions and provide leadership to enable the virus to be managed and contained. Please be with those who are involved with the manufacture, distribution and administration of vaccines across the world. We pray that there will be a fair and equitable sharing of vaccine doses and that the available doses would be distributed to those countries and places who are most in need. Please also bring your comfort to those who have been affected by illness and grief. In your mercy, Lord Jesus, we ask that you will bring an end to the effects of COVID-19 in our world. We bring all these things before you, Lord, confident that you love to hear and answer the prayers of your people. In your precious name, we pray. Amen. Um, financially, we are so grateful um, to everyone who gives sacrificially to support um, the ministry of Trinity Church Allgate. Uh, if you'd like to contribute... Um, these are the details, or you can check it out on the Sunday Hub section of our website. Um, but if you're visiting with us today, um, we're just really glad that you're here. Um, we're about to sing our last song for today, um, so please do stand and sing.
what a song. Thanks, band. Um, next week, we are uh, continuing in Ezekiel. We're not quite done yet. Um, so we'll be looking at Ezekiel 33. So make sure that you can read that if you are able to in the coming week um, for the next service. Um, let's leave sending each other with um, these words. Father, take us and use us to love and serve you and all people in the power of your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'll see you next week.